You are listening to Insights, produced by the University of New South Wales Law Society, a podcast dedicated to bring you an insight into law school, the legal profession, and legal issues. The production team would also like to show our respects and acknowledge the Bedigal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land, of elders past and present on which this podcast is made. For our first ever episode here on the podcast, we have invited someone who has a lot of experience with firsts. She is the Director of First Year Studies, the Co-Director of the Private Law Research and Policy Group, a Professor and Lecturer here at UNSW Law. Her major areas of focus are torts and succession law, of which she is currently working on making culturally appropriate wills for Indigenous people. Considered a bit of an icon within our community, she has had years of experience teaching and guiding countless students through their studies here. A huge welcome and thank you to Professor Prue Vines for joining us here today. Oh, thank you very much. Um, do you mind if you give us uh, three interesting facts about yourselves, namely uh, two truths and one lie? Oh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's really hoisting me by my own petard, isn't it? Exactly. A bit of revenge, um, as I say. Yeah. Justice. Um, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> I love science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I did Taekwondo for 15 years and I am a black tip in Taekwondo and I have six children I think the six children is a lie. I mean, I've met people who have eight children before, so... That's true. Yeah. I think it's the first one, science fiction. Oh, do you think that's the lie? Yeah. No, it's not. It's the six children, children. that's oh, the lie. Okay. I have yeah. three children. They're what very they old names? now. What are their names? <laughs> Olivia, Josh, and Lachlan. And oh. did they study law as well? No, they were all determined not to. They used to say to me, you just do homework all the time. The main thing with children is that I would bring home a book that I had just finished writing and put it on the table and they'd go, oh, hmm. Whereas the only time they were really impressed with something that I did was when Heath Ledger died. So, you know, Heath Ledger, who was in Batman and all of that, and he died. And the Women's Weekly rang me up. The Women's Weekly said, you know, what's happening here? What will happen to the estate? You know, stuff like that. And so I answered and it came out in the Women's Weekly. It's the only time my children have ever been impressed. I feel like um, kids will always resonate um, with Australian TV and stuff With like something that. like that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Seems like they're a celebrity. So a lot of our listeners are first-year students who have just come out of high school and have never experienced a university setting. Do you mind explaining what exactly the title of professor means and also describe a few of your responsibilities as a professor? Okay. So... In the, in the academic environment, a professor is the top rung of um, achievement, I guess. So you have to use generally start as a, le- a tutor or lecturer, go up to senior lecturer, then associate professor and professor. Yeah. And at each level, you have to establish certain things. So in order to be a professor, generally you have to establish that you have an international reputation in respect of something and that you can demonstrate that you have real impact Um, in terms of the research world and the real world, if possible. They expect you to be performing at a level of publishing and teaching and so on that is at least the equivalent of other professors in significant universities in the world. So that's, that's the way it's done. And as a professor, your job really is not just to do the teaching and the research, but also you really need to be bringing along your colleagues with you. So or that's certainly what I think is really important. So 
when you need to be talking to your junior lecturers and senior lecturers and helping them with the way they might go in their research, assisting them with their yep. teaching, um, things like that, because actually we all need to work together in yep. order to make an enterprise like this law school work. You have to all work together. Um, what does that kind of look like in a research setting? Does that kind of mean like collaborating on different um, articles? Well, it, it might be things like getting a junior person to write something with you so yeah. that you can help them with developing their career. So, you know, sometimes when people are developing their research ideas, they get a bit jammed. Yeah. And a conversation with someone who's a bit more senior can sometimes help to say, well, have you thought about how if you do it this way, it might connect with something over there? Yes. And so that sort of thing is can be useful. And I think the other thing is, look, an academic in research means that you have to go stick your head out and stick it on a block and ask for somebody to bring the axe down. Because every single time you send an article to a journal, it can be rejected. Yeah. And... It's really important, I think, for senior academics to say to junior academics, this is just part of the game. It's not about yeah. you. It's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just that this is the process and you need to think about the process of rejection and review as helping you to develop a better article in the end or a better book or whatever it is. So you definitely have a bit of that kind of mentorship role yeah. as well within yeah. the faculty. Mm. And just, just with that, you're, as I mentioned before in your introduction, your particular areas of focus are with torts law and succession law. Um, what kind of made kind you of lean towards these areas? Overall, yeah. the thing that I'm really interested in is the law. in the law yeah. is how the law impacts on people. Yeah. So what does the law do to people? Do When we look at, for example, tort law, do we find that the tort, tort system actually ends up causing more problems than it solves? Yeah. If so, let's fix it. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in how the law impacts on people. So in tort law, one of my really big issues is what goes wrong with compensation law. Yeah. So, you know, we know, for example, that if people get stuck in litigation, they get sick, they get mental illnesses, they, they also might end up not getting as much compensation as they thought. They might run out of compensation. Um, all sorts of things can go wrong. And, we, and our systems need to adjust for that. And often they don't. So we need to pay attention to that. In relation to um, Indigenous people and succession law, the truth was that for most of the 20th century and before, we completely ignored the civil needs of Indigenous people. We just said, oh of no interest. Um, and it's really quite late for us to realise that, the, in particular, the differences between kinship ideas, who counts as in your family and who doesn't. The fact that the, for many Indigenous people that pattern is completely different than what the law recognises, which is a very Western idea yeah. of who's in the family, which means that if, they, if we apply the ordinary law to them, it's going to be really wrong. So that's actually another example of what is the law doing to people and how can we make it better so that people's lives aren't wrecked by it. And so I'm really proud that I've done all this work on intestacy for Indigenous people and now there's legislation that's been put into Parliament that allows for customary law. Yeah. And that's partly because of my work. Yeah. And so you definitely feel as part of like your role as an academic, you're definitely impacting on the way the law is shaped and the way... 
I guess, society really functions as well. Yeah. To me, regard. that's really important. Yeah. And did you kind of know that going into the academia world? Um, obviously, you went through law school as well. Did you think that when you started law school, that academia was going to be it for you? Never crossed my mind. I was going to be a country solicitor. So I, what I wanted to do was go back to the country, live, in, live yeah. on the farm and be the, the solicitor in town. And that was my, that was actually what I planned to do all through. But I did have a kind of a research agenda in my degree. And I wrote a lot of, whenever I had an essay, I wrote it on some kind of aspect of what I was interested in, which was law, language and power. So I actually kind of had this research agenda that I ran through the degree. And at the end of my degree, they asked me to apply for a lectureship. And I went, oh, what? (laughs) Oh, well, maybe that would be good. (laughs) And you decided to apply and now you're here. Yeah, that's right. It was very strange. Do you ever feel um, your skills would have been better elsewhere? I am very lucky to be a professor now. I think law fits my brain because I was a psychologist before and then I switched to law. And I just found that when I came into law school that there was something about the way legal thinking goes and my brain that went together. I found it fascinating and rewarding and exciting and all of that. And I think that doesn't happen for everyone. No. And, of course, not everyone should be a lawyer. Not everyone should do law. And I think that was made very clear, I believe, when you um, gave the seminar in our first year of law school. I think um, a common misconception these days is that anyone can do law. It's kind of like a very good general degree, where indeed it's a very specific professional degree. Yeah. And yes, there are good things about People should know about the law in terms yeah. of their citizenship, but really that should be done at school, yeah. not in a specialist subject like legal studies, but it should be fairly general, and we're not very good at that. No. But um, the truth is that people who get into law school, especially people who get into law school here, most of them can do almost anything, yeah. and they really should follow their passions. And if and they will, because you do best in what you love, don't you? Yeah. yeah. If you do what you love, you're never working a single day. Exactly. Yeah. So just regarding that, um, what actually made you decide to switch from psychology to law? Uh, I used to work with children at risk. Yeah. I did this mixture of family support work and I was trying to train people into developing their social skills because I had a whole lot of clients who could really couldn't go shopping without punching the cashier or yeah. things like that. But then I had a baby and I couldn't cope with the children at risk anymore. Yeah. I really couldn't. Before I had children, I could go to work and come home and you know, kind of turn it off. But somehow or other, motherhood switched that and made it really hard for me yeah. to do that. And I'm looking around thinking, somebody must know what the answer is. Somebody must know. Maybe the lawyers do. So that's when. So I was 27, I think, when I went to law school. And do you think there was any difficulty in switching from your previous like psychological studies to your legal studies? Well, I think they're both about people getting into messes and getting out again. Yeah. So to me, it's a wonderful combination. And so the work on apologies that I've done in tort law, for example, yeah. allows me to draw on both my psychology background and my law background. And the truth is they're both about people and that's why I guess why I'm so interested in how the law impacts on people is because of that sort of psychological interest whereas some people just love the games you can play with the language yeah you know whereas for me people is actually the central point
What is the most common reason why people turn to like legal studies or become lawyers? Well, I'm really glad to say that I think that Although lots of people do it because their parents told them to, it's actually true that a lot of them either initially have a passion for justice and fairness or they develop it. I think that humans have a very strong sense of fairness and justice and that uh, we can tap into that. And so what I like to see in my students is that that's what they're interested in. I mean, the whole point about law really is to make the world a better place. Yeah. And the great thing for me about dealing with law is that we can think about improving the world without just being a wuss about it. You know, you're not just being wet. You're not just kind of, you know, flopping around and talking about victims. You can actually, with law, you can touch the levers of power and you can think, that is something wrong. I know which levers I can touch and eventually we'll change that. A lot of people, they feel that the law is supposed to be a tool of justice. Um, do you think that is up to is the role of kind of you as a professor to instill any moral values into your students? Well, I see that as something that I should do yeah. and that I want to think about. I actually believe very strongly that the rule of law is vital for society. Yeah. I believe that it's very, very important that lawyers have values so that their legal ethics are real ethics. Yeah. Um, and that they understand when there is a real conflict of interest between them and their clients or them and whatever they're trying to do. I think that's important and I think we need to think about it really carefully with our students so that even when students come in with a relatively cynical mindset, um, and sometimes they do for a whole range of reasons that can be very valid, it's important that we can talk about what the basic values ought to be and and then address the things that are wrong. So one of the reasons that, you know, the faculty is now suddenly being changed to law and justice. I think it's kind of good in a way and it's kind of ironic that it's... Only now it, that it's becoming combined. Well, no, I think, I think we have always wanted to talk about law and justice, but people were kind of a bit worried about being twee or something like that. Yeah. But I also think it's interesting that our introducing law and justice course has always had law and justice in it. Yeah. And that um, and that the point has been to ask students to not just learn the law and not to just look at the law, but to look at it in terms of whether it is just. Because of course there are many places where it isn't and where it does need treatment. And I don't think it's good enough for lawyers to say, well that's how the law is tough end of story. The only thing we can do in the world is try to make it a little bit better. And for lawyers, there are actually really good ways to do that. And so for you, what does that kind of look like? What does justice really mean? Well, you know, that's sort of the big biggie. But I guess it, to me, for me, it would come down to issues such as fairness, equality, and thinking about things like the differences between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. Yeah. And the, and the res- and respect for human beings and and not just human beings but also animals, plants, whatever, yeah. um, and recognizing that the world has to be shared, and so we need to have rules that will make us best able to share equally and fairly whatever's in the world. So that might make me a, a an old lefty in some ways, and you know because I do believe in government intervention. Yeah, I am a lefty in that yeah. way, but I think that there is also room 
one of the good things about some of our laws is that we do not regulate everything. Yeah. And there are times when it's good not to regulate something because people actually need. As a law student, one of the questions I think many people ask us throughout our degree is, if you were going to have to represent, for example, a well-known criminal who you probably know has done it, would you? And I think um, this conflicts a lot of people because how is this just if you're representing or giving someone who obviously has done it a fair go? Um, What do you think is just about the system if if a lot of people are, for example, representing obviously well-known criminals. Well, or not just well-known criminals, but somebody that they think has done a terrible yeah. thing. I actually think that you still need to represent those people yeah. um, for a whole range of reasons that are about the legal system in that we need to know that the evidence that we use is robust and yeah. is real and that this is not just an arbitrary thing. And so making sure that the system is tested in that process is also important. But the ethical rules, which, you know, we you learn in lawyers, ethics and justice and things like that, also tell us that you can't say something that you know to be untrue to the court. Yeah. You simply don't do that. And if your client insists that you do, you don't represent them anymore. And so you might have noticed that sometimes with very notorious criminals, they go through lawyers at a yeah. phenomenal rate. And I suspect it's because the lawyer has said, I will not tell a lie for you. So it's perfectly possible, I think, to represent somebody whose values you do not accept, but you don't have to give up your own values. You you need to have carefully articulated what the requirements for your own um action for them are. And I think actually the legal ethics rules are fairly clear. What's problematic is when people want to shave them and sort of slip sideways in through for their own benefit or or whatever. And sometimes, you know, temptation is real for people. But that's one another reason why in law school we really need to address those things. I really believe very firmly that one of the things you need to do while you're in law school is develop your own really clear what I call a grammar of ethical rules, a grammar of your own values, so that when you come up against something that is against your values, you know, first of all, what is wrong with it. You know where your ability to compromise finishes. And you are able to articulate that argument both to yourself and to whoever you are disagreeing with. And I think you need to do that really clearly as early as possible in your degree. Yeah. So a lot of law students obviously come to class um, only learning the content just for the sake of getting um, the ticket. Getting the ticket out. What What do you want to, um, them to get out of it? Oh, okay. Well, I think they need a fundamental of understanding of how the the legal system works, and they need to have developed their own ability to learn whatever needs to be learned. So a large part of the way we teach you here involves you having to be responsible for your own learning. And because you're being responsible for your own learning and you start to practice it in law school, that means that when you get out, and you will constantly have to learn things, but you know how to do it. You're not, you haven't just been stuffed full of information and then got your ticket and then go out and somebody says, how do I do this? And you go, I don't know, I didn't learn that in law school. We don't want that situation. So what's really important is that you understand the basics, the, what I call the levers of power and the structures and things like that and can find it yourself, learn it yourself and so on. And that's what makes 
a good lawyer. And do you think there are any like challenges that law students face in today's day and age that maybe law students didn't have to face a few years ago? Yes, there definitely are. There is, I mean, we are dealing with a shrinking economy, which obviously has an impact on what the possibilities are. We're also dealing with a legal profession which is changing with, um, as, as the internet and digital matters and so on change the way legal practice happens. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that lawyers often think that they're about to lose all their work in something and sometimes they do lose all their work in something, but there's nearly always something else. And suddenly you see, oh, there's this whole other field that we didn't even realise was there. So I think that is what will happen because ultimately law is a service profession yeah. and it provides the services that people need, whatever they are. I think we probably we may see salaries contract a bit, but it still remains true that although not all lawyers are paid in the top 1% of Australia, most of them get a lot more than the average wage. And I actually believe that when we compare ourselves, we'll be much happier if we compare ourselves down than if we compare ourselves up. And then just about that kind of idea of innovation that you just mentioned, um, do you mind um, maybe commenting on some of the effects that technology has um, on the legal profession? Sure. So there are things like people used to do discovery solely by going through the books and, and passing documents around, and now they can do it now it, there's various forms of algorithmic ways of doing discovery, which change the way, change what the lawyers have to do. The yeah. lawyers have to set it up and they have to ask the questions properly and so on. And if they do that badly, the whole algorithm will Just be a disaster. Um, so there's things like that. There's things like the changes to law firms um, in that you can now have accountants and lawyers in the same firm, that sort of thing. That changes the dynamics quite a lot. We have the rise of people using, having online firms where they very rarely see actual people. There's a danger there that people will have not enough contact with people. I mean, we've just been through COVID. We all know about isolation and, and the impact it can really have on people. Yeah. There is all those things like the structures and changes to complaints mechanisms and things like that, they're affected by the changes in technology. And once people get over being intimidated by that, I think it's going to be fine. But we do need to pay attention to whether a particular form of technology is actually going to have an impact on the psychology of the lawyers who are doing it. The truth is nobody does their job well if they are not mentally well. And so paying attention to that's important. A big culture shift, I think, has been occurring in terms of a lot of well-being has been placed, uh, a lot of focus at least, is, has been placed on the well-being of lawyers. For example, recent legislation um, dictating that I think law firms need to audit their time now for junior staff. Um, do you think there's anything else that needs to be done or that can be done to assist with the legal profession in their well-being? Yes. The legal profession has to stop being greedy. Yeah. In the 1950s, a partner in a law firm earned about twice the entry salary of a young lawyer. Now it's more like 30 times. I don't think that's justifiable. I don't think that the fees that lawyers charge in lots of ways are justifiable. Unfortunately, we live in a society where people tend to think their value is actually the value of their salary. That's a real problem because actually your salary and you are not the same thing. Young lawyers go into large law firms and they get absolutely minced. 
Um, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that has ever been a good idea. I think that people should be looking after their people and they should be taking a little bit less of the pie in order to be able to share it out amongst their workers. So that is not always a message that law firms want to hear. But I think... It's a message that they need to hear. They actually need to hear it. Yeah. And do you think that they might actually action that anytime soon or it's going to be a very slow process? I think it would be a very slow process. I don't know if you remember this, but John Cook, the guy who did the tyrannicide brief for Charles I that led to the king's execution in the end, he proposed a cap on lawyers' salaries. Now, that was 1640, 1630. It wasn't popular then. It's not going to be popular popular now. now. Exactly. Um, I think it would have to be forced for it to happen because I think it's very hard to come by that kind of wisdom. But one of the things that would be good, I think, is given we do have so many trained lawyers, we could actually reduce the workload for everybody and have slightly lower salaries for everybody. And that would seem to me to be a sensible thing to do. You say, all right, instead of me getting 150000 a year or whatever it is, I'm going to take 120 and we'll have 20 more people in our group or whatever. Yeah. And that will reduce the workload. That's going to make life better. It's, we tend to think too much about the money and not enough about the other bits. Yeah. I think it's also a vicious cycle of where people expect us to do more because we are getting paid a lot. And then so we do more, but we also expect more. Yeah, and it goes round. And it's normal for humans to want to go up. We don't want to go backwards. We see it as going backwards. So that's normal. But if we could think about, if I do this, I will only have to work 10 hours a day instead of 15. That's worth it for me. If we can think like that, then people won't see it necessarily as a retrograde step. As an academic and also as a teacher, um, you are constantly kind of interacting with all these students who are applying for all these programs. Um, what do you kind of think about? Well, how do you kind of feel watching all these students apply and getting themselves into, I guess, the mince machine? Yes. I really worry about students worrying about whether they get a summer clerkship and whether they get an offer in a law firm. One of the wonderful things about law is that there are very many kinds of law jobs. You can work in legal centres, you can work in rural practice, you can work in a high street practice. There is so many ways in which to have a satisfying law career. And in fact, the number of refugees that come out of those large firms and ends up going into a boutique firm or something like that is phenomenal. So people feeling that they've failed because they don't get a summer clerkship is ridiculous. You're in the top, you know, two or three percent of the population if you're here. Yeah. You should say, well, you should try and take a robust attitude to that and say, look, is that for me? Am I the person who thrives on that kind of pressure and that kind of work and a very narrow scope of law to look at? Is that me? That should be the reason you choose to go for a summer clerkship and a law firm. If if that's not you, then maybe you want to do a broader range of things at a level, lesser level of intensity, then there's lots of options. And you should not be thinking I'm a failure because I'm not going there. You should be thinking what I have to do is what will work in my life, give me satisfaction, because I think satisfaction in your work is actually profoundly important. And... Um, and allow me to have a life as well as a career. I would really like to see us 
keep hammering away at the idea that what you have to choose to do in your law career is what suits you and will give you satisfaction, not what somebody else happens to think is the pinnacle. It's really interesting how you how the way you've like worded out a lot of these ideas is that it's part of the adversarial system or that it's just opposing different views. Do you ever think there is a view that is blatantly wrong, for example, in that? Oh, yes. No, yeah. I do. But those people who've been in my classes know that in my class, you're not allowed to have an opinion without evidence. Yeah. And, um, and so um, if somebody says to me something that I think is utterly wrong, I will ask if they have evidence for that view like where does that come from why are you saying that and if they don't have it then I'm very happy to say I think that's profoundly wrong and so on but it is really important to to say that without saying you are an idiot or you know you're a bad person yeah because I think almost everybody everybody struggles in life everybody has a rough time now and then everybody sometimes says something that they wish later they hadn't said And we need to give people space for that. So saying, I don't agree, you know, I really think that's a problematic view. Can you explain to me why you think it? Yeah. Um, You know, and I hope that I can practice these things. You know, I've been sort of preaching to you for the last little while. Um, And I hope that I, I myself can do the things that I'm saying that people should be doing. Yeah. Because it's about, I think... I think that brings up a really good point about the purpose of the law as well and the legal system, which is not necessarily to immediately make a judgment, but it's the process of kind of um, being very critical about the things that people say, about the things that people do, rather than immediately just say, this is wrong or something like that. Yes, that's right. And I guess when you use the word critical there, I think you really mean being analytical about it because, of course, the critique, which is important, sometimes people worry about its relationship to the word criticism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's really um, important to analyse, to think about it, to think about all the possibilities, to keep asking the questions, in other words. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time again, Prue. Thank you very much, Harry. Thanks again for joining us for our first episode. I'm your host, Harrison, and we'll be back in two weeks talking with Dr. Asaf Lubin from the Berkman Klein Centre at Harvard University. Mm-hmm.